there are a handful of things in the movie where I know in my heart, like, this is what it's about. Um, but I don't like to share that because I feel like it would ruin all, all, everyone's great fan theory. When Shudder requested the script, I'm like, I have to redact that line. They can't know. So I literally took the line, removed it, and typed redacted and the date. Like, as if it's like a CIA document. Bonus Fright Club content. Sound that alarm. We love that. Love that bonus Fright Club content. Welcome. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club podcast. And yeah, this is one we've been looking forward to for a while. Well, we knew about the event, and and I was hoping we could record it for a podcast. Got everybody's uh, permission, and we did because we were lucky enough to have Kyle Edward Ball, the writer-director behind Skinamarink, come and give us a visit at uh, Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. They had a beautiful 35-millimeter print yeah. of Skinamarink to show, and he spent the whole day really there uh, and talked to us for a while. We got to record a Q&A. You'll hear at the very beginning Chris Hamill, the president and programmer of Gateway Film Center, and John Doherty, who runs Film Columbus. They talked to him for a little while, and then we screened the film, and then George and I do the QA afterwards. Yeah, and it was great to, to meet Kyle. He's a great guy. We had, a, we had a, a fun time, and he came in. Of course, he's Canadian. And he came in uh, the night that they went out. He went out with Chris and John mm-hmm. to get to know Columbus a little bit. And it happened to be not only St. Patrick's Day, but it was one of the first big nights of March Madness. And so Gateway- Ohio State yeah. had, they hosted part of March exactly. Madness. Exactly. And Gateway Film Center is right on the Ohio State campus. So things were rocking. Let's, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> I think Columbus might have looked more exciting than it generally is. But we just all as a town decided to impress Kyle Edward Ball. Yeah. And uh, he enjoyed himself and he had nice things to say about about Columbus and the, the whole experience. And it was a great time. So we hope uh, he w- we hope that he will not be a stranger. So, uh, yeah, so we'll present the uh, the podcast as the, the intro from Chris and John, and then you'll hear us do the Q&A afterwards, and then we'll be back. So enjoy. Hi. How are you? I'm Chris Hamill, CEO of Gateway Film Center, and welcome to the world premiere of Skinamarink on 35mm. A couple things before we get started. When you program 10,000 films in 14 years you start to get a pretty good sense of what audiences are going to react to. And I got the privilege to watch this film that you're about to watch on film in December and couldn't take my eyes off of it. Uh, It's really an incredible piece of filmmaking. It crosses genres. I'm so happy you're here with us tonight. And of course, we're going to introduce Kyle to you in just a second, and you can hear from him. Uh, How many of you have already seen the film? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think it's safe to say um, all of us have, none of us have ever seen it like this since the print showed up in a box, never been opened before. Uh, George Wolf told me to say it has that new film smell. <laughs> it does. But, you know, the Film Center has been doing events like this for all these years, and oftentimes they're not possible without guys like John Doherty from the Greater Columbus Film Commission who co sponsored tonight's event. So I'm going to turn it over to John for a second. John, come say hi. Um, thanks, Chris. Again, my name is John Doherty. I'm the film commissioner for Columbus in Central Ohio, and it's a pleasure to have Kyle here. I apologize. I think I kept Kyle out too late last night, but <laughs> but uh, he's seen Columbus a little bit. He loves it. I think you even said, hey, Kevin, I think you even said, I like it better than Toronto. 
Um, thank you very much for coming. Kyle and I shared some great stories last night. It was fascinating to sit and listen to him talk about this movie and how it got made and you know financed and everything and the issues and the the the, uh, the problems you had with distribution at one point. But um, George and uh, Hope are going to ask a lot of questions to Q and A. I don't want to give too much away, but we're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Kyle. Hello. Hiya. So first off, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. I can't even begin to describe how surreal this is for me. Um, I was telling someone at the meet and greet that like, not even a year ago, I was doing data entry for minimum wage in a windowless room, and now I'm here. So this is incredible. I don't really know how to introduce this. Um, I think I was told, do, do, should I just, do you want to ask me some questions or leave me? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think a really interesting story when we were talking last night was when your film got pirated. Oh, yeah. So, Tell that story. Okay, so here's what happened. So we played at Fantasia in July of 2022. Shortly after Fantasia, maybe August or so, uh, we signed on the dotted line with Shutter and IFC. Um, they wanted to release it Halloween 2023. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. I'll have lots of time to rest and <laughs> think about what I'm going to do for my second movie. And then, so then we played a few festivals around Europe. It played at one festival in Spain that had an online portion. Um, I don't want to say the name of the festival because it's not their fault it got pirated. They're still a great festival. Um, but within, I think, 24 hours of it playing, it, it and the entire slate of online films were pirated. Um, I found out about it through Twitter. I frantically emailed my distributor. Um, they frantically emailed the festival and pulled it. And then I was advised um, to maybe not tell Shudder about the situation, or they didn't know how Shudder would react, or I don't know. So I had this three-week period after it was released of panicking about the entire situation because I was afraid Shudder was going to rip up the deal. Um, then about, and in the meantime, the movie kept blowing up more and more, and Kids on TikTok were talking about it a lot, which was, um, it was a weird thing too, because I, before this, whenever anyone talked about the movie, I would interact with them on social media, like, thank you, da 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 da. And then after this, I felt like I couldn't do that because I felt like it would just pull more eyeballs onto the movie and it would get pirated more, Shudder be more likely to find out about the situation. And it was a real bummer too, because like people were sending me fan art and stuff and I couldn't say anything, right? So about three weeks in, um, Shudder messaged me and said, okay, so we know about the leak, don't panic. We know, we've heard that you're stressed out about it. 
we're going to take care of you, we're gonna take care of the movie, we'll bump up the release date to January, and it's, it's fine. Like, everything is okay, Kyle, right? Um, so then I had just all this tension exited my body and everything was good again. And as far as um, people pirating the movie, um, it was scary in the moment, but in retrospect, I would say in this particular circumstance, it definitely helped the movie. Um, I'm not saying every time piracy happens, it's good. I'm not saying every time piracy happens, it's bad. It's like everything in life, it, things can be gray. So if, if there's anyone in the audience who maybe watched the movie when it was pirated, but you love it, thank you so much. Because that's really the most important thing. I'm just happy that people love the movie. The only bad thing was when people pirated and like were vocal about how they hated it on social media. And it's like, I can't, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I can't give you anything in return. Um, so yeah, that's basically the piracy. Oh, another thing too, Shudder and IFC, they're surprisingly like realistic about the reality of piracy. I know sometimes big networks don't appear that way. They're very, they understand that shit happens and they've been great through the whole thing too. So. Tell um, the story too about Rolling Stone in Brazil because I, yeah. I kind of so found the Brazilian that thing. Oh my god, the Spanish festival we had played at. They had obviously Spanish subtitles available in the file, and someone took the Spanish subtitles and did a fan sub. They translated it to Portuguese. And then, so out of nowhere, I started getting all these follows from Brazilian Twitter accounts. There's this one guy who, he changed his headline to the president of the Kyle Edward Ball fan club. <laughs> and so that was insane. And then we appeared in Rolling Stone, Brazil. Like before, and this was, I think, even before the Shutter announcement and everything, like there was an article in... Rolling Stone, like granted, Rolling Stone Brazil, but still, that was that was huge, right? So, and we are actually formally releasing in Brazil on I think the twenty third, so that's going to be exciting. So, um, there's a lot of filmmakers in the room. Sort of talk about how you got started and how you got to here. Okay, so in a nutshell, it's like this: um, I wanted to be a director since I was six, seven years old. Uh, took video in high school, went to a nice little film school in Edmonton. Um, and then after college, I started selling video equipment for Canada's version of B&H photo, photo. It's called VizTech. Um, while I was doing that, I played around with doing horror shorts. Um, after, are you guys familiar with the short Lights Out? It was turned into a feature. So after that came out, there was this horror short explosion, like everyone and their grandma was doing horror shorts. I did a few, and I did them kind of for the wrong reasons. I made stuff that I thought people would like and not necessarily what I would like to make. and. They were pretty bad, and so then one day I thought of the Nightmare series, so people would comment nightmares they'd had and I would recreate them, and that channel never really blew up, but I 
found the process very rewarding because I would make a little video and people would say, oh, I love this, thank you so much. And it was also a nice sound box on how to learn how to do horror and also learn what I was good at, learn what I was bad at. Then around 2019, I thought, okay, I should probably get started on a feature. So I made a proof of concept short called Heck. Um, that short didn't really go anywhere, but I was happy with it. So I thought, okay, maybe I could turn this into a feature. I got laid off from my job and I thought, okay, that might be a sign. So I started writing uh, Skinamarink and we spent about eight months or so, development, pre-production, da, 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 da. We spent seven days shooting it and then I spent five or six months editing it and yeah. Which festivals did you submit to? Which ones accepted Skinamarink? What was that process like for you? Okay. After we got the distribution deal, we submitted to a few festivals. The big one I submitted to was Fantasia in Montreal. Um, I really, really wanted to get into Fantasia. Fantasia is kind of known for taking chances on new filmmakers. It's a big thing for them. And compared to a lot of other festivals, they will actually program a lot of things that are just from submissions, as opposed to some festivals, they will, they'll take submissions, they'll take your, your submission fee, but a lot of what they program is just stuff distributors send them. But Fantasia is actually really good with pulling from their submissions pool. Um, so around May, June, I was in a really dark place. I was really sad. I had a big cry about my assistant director who had passed away and I felt like I failed his memory because no one was really paying attention to the movie. So I woke up after that big night of crying and sadness to an email from Fantasia saying, hey, we wanna play your movie. And it was like, oh my God, it's happening, right? So um, after Fantasia, we had, I had, didn't really submit into any more festivals, but my distributor did. So Tohor in Italy, which was a great festival and got us our first award for best feature. Um, and then a handful of other ones across Europe. And now it's, it's playing in ones that I don't even know about <laughs> it anymore. Like I'll find out like through Twitter that it's like, oh, it played at this festival and here and yeah. So tell us a little, you know, for the filmmakers that are out here, we were talking earlier, you know, as you're making a movie, did you have a plan for this was, did you say, hey, I'm gonna submit to Fantasia, I'm gonna save some money out of all of the Seed and Spark uh, money to submit to festivals because we talk about this a lot. Filmmakers come to us, hey, what, do, you know, what am I gonna do with my film? It's like, have you thought about what you're gonna do after it's made? So tell us a little bit about that. So I planned for this like I was going into space. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing, I think the strength of how this movie came to be was I planned, I planned, I planned. I had a 96 page script. I had a 
super long shot list, like Excel spreadsheet style. I had a shooting schedule based on the shot list that I had. I even had plans for like, let's say one of the kid actors gets like sick and can't come. I had a plan for, okay, if we're just shooting with one kid. I had a plan for if none of the kids came, it's like, okay, backup shots to film it where there's no one in the movie. I had, oh, we planned, like we planned insanely hard for this. And then after editing, I started planning for distribution, but really it was just like, okay, we'll submit to Fantasia, I'll do a trailer and put that out there and see if we get distribution. Um, I didn't have any of the crowdfunding budget for Fantasia, but that's because Fantasia, the submission fee is quite inexpensive compared to other festivals of its ilk. And also there's a discount for Canadian filmmakers. So it was pretty cheap submitting to Fantasia. But yeah, um, I planned really, really hard. Plan, 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 plan. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, I think that's a huge testament to pre-production and how important pre-production is. I got one more for yeah. you and then we'll take a break and we'll okay. start this print. Again, don't want to spoil too much because Hope and George are going to host a Q&A with you guys afterwards and give you a chance to ask Kyle questions. But the thing I always ask you know, at all these festivals and screenings we do is, okay, you've got a hit film. What are you doing next? So I had two ideas for movies. One was called The Backward House about people who see a house in their dream. The other one was a Universal Monsters version of the Pied Piper. Um, I would tell people those and people would get excited and over time I fell out of love with them. Uh, and someone else, like this one production company, I told them the Pied Piper thing and she's like, well, there's two of those in development already and it's like, <laughs> Whatever. So anyways, I have another idea that I'm really excited about that I haven't told anyone, and I'm going to keep it that way till the script is done. And hopefully that'll be written at some point. I'll finish writing it maybe this winter, and then hopefully we'll go into production next year, and maybe if everything goes quickly, we might even release next year. So, yeah. So this 35 millimeter print that you're about to see is literally the world premiere and they contacted you about putting it on film. Oh yeah, yeah. So IFC emailed me one day and they're like, hey, we have a third party who would like to do some film prints of it. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, you won't be able to supervise it or do quality control. And it's like, fine, <laughs> right? Like, still, like, I'm sure it's fine. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah. And now we're playing in Columbus. Yeah. And you haven't even seen it. I, on haven't, film. I haven't seen this. I haven't seen it either. I'm pretty you actually, No, wait. You haven't seen the movie at all. I haven't yeah. seen the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting. One more round of applause for Kyle. One more time. There's going to be a Q&A with Hope and George in this screening room right after the screening. After the Q&A, Kyle will be in the festival lounge again. So if you want to get a chance to talk to him and ask some more questions, you can. We're so grateful you're here tonight. Thanks again. Thank you to John. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, and, uh, Kyle. You guys can take about a five 
seven minute break if you want to. Grab something else to drink, use the restroom. We'll start the film right at seven o'clock. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. All right, please welcome back Kyle Edward Ball. I know we've got a lot of, uh, of audience questions. One thing I wanted to ask you, because we were lucky enough to see this pretty early for, to review it, and thank you for retweeting my review, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then right after, I watched the short film, Heck. How many people have seen Heck? Okay. See it right now. Yeah, I mean, heck. not right now, but shortly. <laughs> One thing I was curious about, and I'm not going to uh, spoil it for anybody that hasn't, but there's a certain one particular line of dialogue near the end of the short that did not make it into the feature. Is, was that because you thought it was too leading someone somewhere? Oh, wait. Um, you mean, which line do you mean? <laughs> the, the just... They're whispering. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, um, so there was one particular line that I didn't include in this. Partially, too, because Heck is, is a different thing, right? Like, Heck was always designed to be a proof of concept, but something that was a different story. Like, for example, in Heck, there's no monster, and there's only one kid. Um, so I always wanted Heck to be kind of a, a spiritual not prequel, but like precursor to this that was still a different story with different themes, different interpretations, etc. Um, and so if you're looking for answers in heck at, at to, as to what this movie is, like you, you won't find any. But, mm -hmm. Or maybe you will, I don't know. I know we've got questions. Raise your hand, we'll come to you. Um, I was kind of wondering, since this movie is kind of blown up on TikTok and YouTube and all these other various internet forums and different things of the like. Where do you land on um, these different interpretations of the monster or the ending or the characters and things like that? Is it more of a open interpretation type of thing or are you kind of like, nah, this is, this is how I see it and it's more of a uh, singular interpretation type of thing rather than an open thing. Okay. Um, so before I even started writing it, I wanted it to be a movie that everyone could interpret for themselves. There are a handful of things in the movie where I know in my heart, like, this is what it's about. Um, but I don't like to share that because I feel like it would ruin all, everyone's great fan theory, right? I just really like that everyone has, like, almost like a personalized version of the movie just for themselves, right? Um, and I would say that no theory is wrong and, and also no theory is right, right? Because it's completely up to you. It's not my movie anymore, it's yours, so, yeah. So, I oh wait, another thing too. There are actually a handful of parts in the movie too where I don't even know what necessarily it means. Like, the look under the bed scene, I don't know why the dad asked that. I, I didn't have that. So even me, I don't know the answers to a lot of these. So, I wanted to ask you, we talked about this a little bit earlier. The first time I watched it, I thought there was a good chance that the, the kids being filmed might not have even known that they were in a scary movie. Can you talk a little bit about working with them? Yeah, for sure. So we tried to make things as kid-friendly as possible. Um, the kids 
didn't know the script because they're they're too young to read a 96 page script right <laughs> so when i got them on set so first off i was incredibly nervous i don't work with actors often and especially kid actors right they can be difficult and I was so nervous, I was shaking. Like, I was literally shaking. I was holding that tape recorder, and I was shaking. And so I, I gave them broad strokes of what the story was. Like, you're a brother and sister, you're in a house, your dad's missing, there's a monster. And then everything on camera were just simple directions, right? So walk to the end of the hallway and come back, right? Just little things like that. So we did the first take and they just did it like perfectly. And then I was, I had no anxiety after that. Like, I'm like, oh, we might actually be able to do this. And we did it. And then for the dialogue, I just gave them line readings. I said, okay, so now say this. Could you do it different? Da, 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 da. And they were incredibly receptive to it, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, they didn't really know what the broad, what, what the movie was. They basically had a, two, three-sentence synopsis given to them. So, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the way that this movie uh, foregrounded lighting. Um, mm. And, you know, <laughs> it was bewildering, but it was, like, so effective. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, technically, how you got uh, the lighting that you did in the movie and then also sort of you know, philosophically, how you sort of conceived of it adding to the thematic elements of the movie. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. So when I did the proof of concept, I thought I just wanted to try not using any real lighting at all. So when I did Heck, it was just TV, flashlight, and for the like pitch black scenes, we had a sun gun with a blue filter. And it worked because modern cameras have gotten so good that they can like see almost better than the human eye in the dark. So when we went to the feature, we did the same thing. And the big thing for that too, from an artistic standpoint, is I think it looks more realistic. It's a little bit more boring looking in certain parts, but it also just, it feels more real, right? And reality can be kind of mundane looking, right? And then it also helped with the mood, right? So when all the lights go off and it's just the TV, it has an eerie feeling that you don't oftentimes necessarily see in a movie. And also it helped with time and working with kids, right? Like when you have child actors, you can't be like, well, I guess you can do this, but it's hard to be like, okay, now we're gonna take 30 minutes relighting your close up, right? Like, so it was, practical too and I think it I think it worked so I know that you slightly touched on this with her question but uh, I kind of want to expand it on it a little bit more and not only expand on uh, Skinamarink but also your movie Heck as well uh, what were some of the uh, difficulties that you had during writing and production uh, for both movies and how did you overcome that yeah. So with Heck, it was more, I didn't really have, hmm. with Heck, it was, we only shot it in a day. Um, and okay, another big difficulty with Heck too. So first off, just like Skinner Marine, I planned for it like I was going into space. 
So not a lot of stuff went wrong. But one big thing was the day of heck. My assistant director had slept in. So we were like two hours behind. I was pissed, right? Like he lives, he lives three blocks away and he wasn't answering his phone. So I marched my ass over to his place and started throwing stuff at his window. And then I saw him like wake up and I'm like, and like, so I was doing, other, I was like calling his girlfriend who was like away in, and I'm like, can you get a hold of him? And she was super sweet about the whole thing. So that was one difficulty. Also, another big difficulty, that TV is a nightmare. It's really heavy. It's like those old TVs are incredibly front heavy. When we were shooting Heck, the power button broke. Like, it got squished into the TV. Also, my friend never provided the remote because, like, that's a whole other thing. So we had to do this thing where we unplugged it and plugged it back in to get it to turn on. Also, it would go to the wrong channel when you unplugged and plugged it back in, and it was just snow. So also, it would reset the volume every time you did that to like halfway. So we would plug it back in. There'd be like a second of silence, and then there'd be this like in, on a really quiet set, too. So that was difficult. Um, outside of that, like, the general kind of difficulties was just, you know, the same stuff that every indie filmmaker has to deal with, right? Like, getting funding, getting support, getting people to believe in it, and especially a weird movie like this, like, getting people to believe in a weird movie, right? Like, I had to explain to people a lot, okay, we're going to shoot this weirdly, we're going to this is a strange movie. You kind of just have to trust me. And because I have so many great friends and family, they did. So there wasn't a ton of difficulties on set. Because, um, again, we planned stuff so well outside of, like, little things like the TV. Um, there was difficulty in post-production. My assistant director passed away. And that was hard because he was my friend. And so I... I would be editing and I would just burst into tears, which usually when you're doing that, when you're editing, it's because it's like, oh, this cut isn't working, right? So that was a major difficulty in post-production. But uh, another thing too was when I finished the rough cut, I was sending it to my friends to like provide feedback and it was right around Christmas and so it's like hey do you want to watch a two hour movie about two kids suffering and give me <laughs> feedback right and and also to half of the, the people too oh yeah and it's a script you've already read so there's no surprises right and like so it was frustrating doing that because like people reasonably were taking their time before reviewing it and I started to take it personally I'm like you donated to the crowdfund. You helped me up until this point. Why aren't you helping me now when I need it most? Like, I'm running out of money. I need to sell this movie. I need to get it done. Like, so that was a whole thing. Yeah, so I had a question about the sound of the movie. So I think so much of horror typically relies on, you know, the haunting, you know, screams and just the general atmosphere of what, like jump scares and everything like that. And I was just wondering if you could speak on how this really didn't have that, but it still had that tip, like horrifying, like what's going to happen every second. And 
how you did that with visuals as opposed to sound. Yeah. So two major influences on the sound design were the birds and the Blair Witch Project mm. because those movies don't have music and I think it works to great effect in those. Um, that doesn't necessarily work in every horror movie, but I use those as kind of just spiritual, mental templates to craft the sound of it. And then from day one, I wanted the kids to mostly whisper or talk quietly because I thought that would help the mood. And also in the original script, that whole like subtitles thing, that's in the script, right? And that was partially because I wanted to try it. I thought it would be a neat experiment to have parts where we kind of hear them talk, but not really, so we'd have titles. And also I thought, okay, they're kids. Kids don't enunciate the best necessarily, so this is a good like fallback if they don't deliver the lines properly. I can just use a title, right? And so, yeah. So that was a big thing as far as the sound of them whispering, right? I wanted it to feel like for like long stretches of silence and quiet and unnervingness and then just cacophonies and then back to quiet, right? Because I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. And yeah. I'm always interested to hear the process of a director editor. Mm -hmm. So like in particular with this movie, um, shooting it digitally, but then being in this realm of analog horror where there are these moments where it's complete contrast, but you as a post-production connoisseur are creating this like grain, this living like moving contrast with like the 16 millimeter, like even being able to see this in 35 millimeter, like this moving analog horror VHS movement and how does one do this in the present but still pay homage to the retro film grain of it all? How do you fabricate that? Yeah, for sure. So I'll do the, the emotional and then the technical. So the emotional is I really love, love, love old movies of all kinds. Like I watch, most movies I watch, like just as my comfort movies, are like pre-1980 and so I really wanted to make a movie that was old, right? So I just did it, right? And through doing my YouTube series, I had this set of bought um, Super 8 overlays, like 40 different film stocks. And so when I was editing, I kind of did everything all at once. So I would cut like the bones of the movie, I would do sound design, I would do color grading, and I would do those overlays. And different overlays worked for different scenes and different color grades. So there's like something like 30 different film, film stocks in the movie. And I just kind of went, like dove in and did it all at the same time at my own pace. And there's even parts in it too that I don't think it quite looks like real film, but I think the most for most of it, it it works quite quite well. And as far as being a director editor, in film school, we were always told like directors can't edit their own movies. They're not they're 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 biased, right? That's the the common wisdom is they're biased. They they won't be willing to cut a scene or this and that. I think I'm pretty good at that. I think I'm reasonably good at 
cutting stuff that I, I, even though I really like the scene, I think it needs to go on the cutting room floor. And I really like, I can't imagine not editing my own movie. Like I couldn't imagine a stranger's hands on my baby, right? Like, so, yeah. You know, I'm just curious because, uh, you know, horror can be such a, a personal thing. H how many people here, like myself, this worked on a level because you had a nightmare similar to this as a child? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it really just hits a, it hits a different level uh, when it's like, oh, man, you're speaking to me. But isn't that, isn't that why the story I heard is that when you were getting these submissions of nightmares, you saw this same one yeah. come up many times. Yeah. Um, so when I did my nightmares YouTube series, people would comment basically the broad strokes of this, right? So I'm in my house, my parents are gone, and there's a monster, and I have to deal with it. And I almost think, I swear everyone on the planet has this dream. I almost feel like it's a common thread in humanity, um, and developmentally, I feel like most people, they appear to have it between the ages of six and 10. And that's about the, the age where you have to start dealing with stuff without mom and dad, mm. right? Like, mm. so I don't think that's necessarily a coincidence. Um, I also noticed too, if you make something really personal, like that's really, that you really want to make that you believe is just your voice, you'll find it's not just your voice mm. because we we have more in common than we think, right? I think a lot of directors think, oh, I'll pander to the audience. Pander to yourself, because you're the audience, right? We, everyone in this room has more in common than we, than we don't, and I think a movie like this is evidence of it. Um, when you were writing the script, did you have the specific cartoon clips that you used in the movie in mind, or, is, or did they come like after the fact? There's a handful that I did, so... I think Presto Changeo, I think I had researched that while I was writing it. And there's a handful to that. I picked them from day one because I wanted to use cartoons throughout and I had to make sure they were copyright free. So there's a handful that worked for the script and I knew were copyright free. So Presto Changeo was, was a day one selection. I think Cobweb Hotel was a day one selection. And somewhere in Dreamland, I'm pretty... No, I guarantee it's in the script. I wrote Somewhere in Dreamland is in the script. And it also appears prominently in Heck. And Somewhere in Dreamland is perfect for it because um, when I was little, my mom had a gotten a bargain bin tape of a bunch of public domain cartoons. And Somewhere in Dreamland was on it. And it always stuck with me. And it fits the theme of the movie perfectly. It's about like a brother and sister who go to dreamland. And so there's so much imagery I can use in the movie, like just like them falling asleep and going to dreamland. It, it fits like a glove over this. Like I, now that I think about it, there was times I'm pretty sure somewhere in dreamland was a tentative working title for this before Skinnamarink. So yeah. Um, we're getting the flashing light. We have time for one more. One more. I'm curious about the uh, script because you say it's 95 pages, but um, is it extremely detailed? Like I, we see the ceiling and the, the shadows are at 45 degrees and 67 degrees, or did you just like use a 72-point font because it's so 
simple in a lot of ways. Yeah. But you said 96 pages. The, the script is actually, it's standard font size for scripts, and it's written like a traditional script. So, like, there's parts in it where it says interior. We, I don't say we see, because you're not supposed to, or maybe I do. Um, like, we are looking at the ceiling in the living room, Kevin and Kaylee are off of frame, and then I have the dialogue. So the way it's presented, that's literally how it's written for the most part, right? And it was a good thing to have an edit. Like, I treated it basically as a post-production script as, as well. That's another thing, too, because there's not a lot of words, but there's a lot of yes, no, okay. There's a lot of one-word lines, which actually take up, like, pages, right? So there's a <laughs> lot of, like, yes, no, where's it? I don't know. Then, like, there's actually a lot of lines. It's just, like, the same, like couple of words, right? So that's another thing, too. And there are parts that are written very detailed, like the 572 days shot. I think yeah. that's three pages in the script because I just wanted to describe it very detailed. I don't know if I want to publish the script because there's parts I think I would have to redact because it would ruin fan theories. And I, I the last thing I would want is fan theories. So I might have to go... I did send the script to Shudder because they requested it. And in the finished script, the monster answers the question. And while we were shooting it, I asked my assistant director, Josh, should I, should I keep that line? And he said, no, get rid of it. And so we got rid of it. And then when Shudder requested the script, I'm like, I have to redact that line. They can't know. Like, no one can know what the, the monster answers. So I literally took the line, removed it, and typed redacted and the date. And like as if it's like a CIA document, right? <laughs> and then if I want to publish it to like the public, I have to go through and like redact it, redact it, redact like like a deposition form, right? Like so so if I ever do publish it, it's going to be heavily redacted. <laughs> <laughs> well, we cannot thank you enough for the movie, for coming here. How about it for Kyle Edward Ball and Skinnamarink? Thank you so much for coming, everyone, sincerely. Now, see, the thing I just realized is why didn't we get him to say, stay frightful, my friends, I when he was know. here? Oh. <sighs> What were we thinking? I don't know. We were not thinking at all. We weren't. But that was great. And there were some good questions in the crowd. And, of course, it was it was great to see a 35-millimeter print of Skinnamarink and uh, hear all the, you know, the, the stories behind it, how it came to be, and interpretations, and how he wants to leave it up to everyone's interpretations, which I love. I do love that. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Kyle Edward Ball, for a great time. Hope to see you again soon. So we're looking ahead to the next Fright Club. Well, we're going to be right back at Gateway, Fright Club Live. We another are. edition, yeah. We are. But you know what? Let's real quick shout out. Thank you to everybody who appreciated. We had David Greathouse on the last time. An absolute legend. Uh, such a great guy. Such a great horror makeup effects. Yeah. Just maestro. And he came on and we talked about horror makeup, the, the most iconic. And, and he, oh my God, the, just the intel that he shared. He's yeah. so great. He's such a sweet person. One of, our, one of our dear friends. And we were so happy to have him on. People seem to enjoy the show. So that was very cool. Uh, Seth was a little sorry not to hear about any zombie movies. He expected to do at least one zombie movie. Yep, I get that. And also people wondered about The Thing. which sure. Yep. But it was more, 
Those, and we did mention the thing in the podcast, but I think we were leaning more toward makeup. Not to not to belittle any of the work no. in the thing because it's great. Yeah, but uh, I think the ones we the ones we picked were were pretty awesome as well. Yeah, we appreciate all the feedback and can't thank David Henson Greathouse enough because house house as we call him. Fantastic. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to everyone involved for that. As we look forward to, yeah, we're back at Gateway Film Center just here in a few days, well, in a week or so. Mm -hmm. We're going to do the next edition of Fright Club Live as we show one that we were sort of surprised to hear that not many people had seen, and that's Session 9. Yeah, we're, we, we, there was a poll. We didn't take it, but somebody took it at a, a recent Fright Club. Yeah, Richard. Richard, Richard. one of his polls. Uh-huh. And uh, and it was just a list of all of the horror films everybody should have seen, and we were shocked that only one person who was there, it was a pretty big house, too. Yeah. Only, only Brandon had seen it. Nobody else there had seen Session 9. Which is nuts to me. And so uh, Chris Hamill, thank you very much, got us a copy. So we were going to be showing Session 9, and we we're going to, our topic is The Patient. The Patient. So that'll be the next Fright Club Live. And then the week after that, we're going to have bonus content. More with bonus! Our, yeah, with our recent conversation with who? Bruce Campbell. <laughs> he is out on the road with his Bruce O'Rama game show slash movie night. Coming here to Columbus on April 21st, so we got to talk to him about that, and he's always a blast to talk to. And uh, we got Bruce coming, too, on a Fright Club. So lots of good stuff coming, but hope you enjoyed the uh, Kyle Edward Ball Q&A for Skinnamarink. Uh, we can always talk more about it. Love to keep the conversation going anytime. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Fright Club Pod. Also, we've got that special Fright Club podcast group. That's what you search on on Facebook, and uh, we'll get you in there as well. And you can always find our main website, madwolf.com, for our other movie reviews, written reviews, and our other podcast, The Screening Room. So keep in touch if you can. We'll be talking again soon. And until then, she is Hope Men. He's George Wolf, And this is the Fright Club Podcast. <laughs>